just like that, we were back. And by we, I mean you and I. I'm Josh Pate. You are you. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. We've got a ton to get to. I mean, I know we just did one of these Tuesday, but you guys submitted some really, really good stuff. So we're going to dive in in just a second. Remember, if you haven't already, and a lot of you have, judging by the numbers, Give us a five-star review. I was thinking driving home last night. I drove up to Nashville from Columbus last night, which is why I may sound tired this morning. If I do, just excuse it. You can hear you can hear this can. I have some assistance over here to my side. But I was thinking when I was driving home, you know, what's a reasonable number for five-star reviews? And then I thought about my favorite quote from Mean Girls by Lindsay Lohan. And that quote is, the limit does not exist. It doesn't exist. So... You know, we can aim for a thousand. We can aim for ten thousand. Whatever. Let's just let's just rack them up. Let's just get all those five star reviews we can. Let's get all the downloads we can, because that just allows us to do more of what really we want to do anyway, and what you want us to do. Every time I open emails about requests from you, it's, hey, give us more of this. Hey, give us more of that. Hey, have you ever thought about producing this? And the answer is normally, yeah, I've thought about all that. So make it happen. You guys already made extra shows per week happen. So now let's see what else we can make happen. Some of you were asking about merchandising this week. Who knows what the future holds? The point is, it's in your hands. As I like to say, very carefully, my balls are in your court. So we have got a lot to get to today. I want to quickly remind you again, we did a call to action on the first couple of shows we've done this week, the extra podcast and also Late Kick Live over on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. We have got to help out our friends down in Louisiana. Got to help them out. Lake Charles, Cameron Parish. I read you an email from Jim the other day. Desperation time for our folks down there. And a few universities have kicked in, and I know several more since I last spoke to you have kicked in some aid and some relief. Uh, it's just, I'm not saying it's not enough in a sense that, well, that was microscopic by comparison to what they need. No, it's made a big dent. But it's just, if you've seen some of the pictures that are coming out, only just now, are damage assessors from the National Weather Service able to even get into some of these areas to assess damage? Storm surge is an incredible thing. If you've never studied the science behind it, this is not necessarily the podcast to do it. Storm surge is an incredible, incredible thing. It is literally wind pushing the ocean onto shore. That's essentially what's happening. And it happened in a big way down there, along with 150 mile an hour sustained winds on the eastern eye wall coming on shore. So really, really tough times down there. Homelessness, people going to be without power still for several more weeks. Do whatever you can, please. And with that, let's dive into Late Kick Extra. We're going to start it off with a question from Adam this morning. He says, what would it take for 24-7 Sports to have someone like Woj or Adam Schefter? Is it money, lack of connections, or the fact that conferences in college are private? I think it could be a fun question to explore on the podcast about developing ultimate college football insiders like they have at the NFL level. This is a good question. It is very layered, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes here and dive into it. Now, who he's talking about here is... Adam Schefter, Woj, guys like that at the NBA and NFL levels at ESPN, they do a phenomenal job. They're always the guys with the scoop. They're always the ones who you'll see on the bottom line breaking the big stories. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. College sports, and in particular college football, a little bit different here. College football, to me, is two industries, and they exist in totally different worlds. You've got the actual football side of things, and then you've got the recruiting world. And I want you to think about how detached the two are. 
24-7 is essentially where those two are married better than anywhere else on planet Earth to me. You've got someone like Barton Simmons or someone like Bud Elliott, for example, who do their own podcast. It is very good as well. If you haven't already checked it out, check it out. It's the Barton and Bud Show. But think about this for a second. Where else on planet Earth are you finding a combination of two guys who are on our National Recruiting Council, so they're intimately involved in not only scouting but assignating star ratings to players that are going to in turn be used by everyone else in the college football ether to use as a gauge when they are referring to players, but then also they're involved on the college football national editorial team here. So 24-7 sports is, I think, where you marry those two concepts the best. Otherwise, people who are ultra inside in the world of recruiting sometimes can't even tell you who's in first place in the MAC. They can't even tell you the names of all the head coaches in the Pac-12. So that's one thing. It's the worlds are totally separate, and there's a little bit of Velcro and a little bit of softness attached to the edges, but there's very little connection sometimes. The second part is the NFL features uniformity whether it be salary cap structure to the way the draft works and how many draft picks everyone gets, the sizes of the divisions are all the same. College football doesn't feature that. College football features recruiting instead of a draft. It features all kinds of nuance and variables when it comes to division size. Are you even in a division? Which division has access to this? Which division has access to that? Which division is tucked away in a different part of the country that is away from most of the hot geographic recruiting beds? And so for that reason, it's a whole lot more difficult sport to have a firm grasp on. If you're an expert in the Pacific Northwest, chances are in the SEC, there's someone who just knows it better than you. And I want you to also think about this. You know, it's true that the NFC South and the AFC West... Well, they are different, but yet they're the same too. Everything about them is the same. Everything that you look at is the same. Same number of teams, draft works the same, cap works the same. So the only real differences between the Las Vegas Raiders and the Atlanta Falcons are the cities that they play in. And the NFL is intentionally structured to where they could pick up those teams today and drop them somewhere else and you know, you got to acquire a new fan base, develop a new logo, and find a stadium. But after that, everything's taken care of. That's not the way it is in college. College is so much more nuanced. I've used that word twice already, but there is so much more to unpack in college. Let me also remind you of this, and this is more fundamental in nature. You cannot discuss, at least ethically, you cannot discuss college football players the way you do NFL players. One is a professional athlete. The other is an amateur athlete. Here's what I mean. If I happen to know that at Arkansas right now, there was a left tackle that was a 24-7 sports preseason All-American, but yet he is not quite living up to expectation and he's about to be bypassed. I mean, if that's happening in the NFL, if that's happening to the Houston Texans left tackle in the NFL, I could trash him on TV. I could take everything someone's telling me behind the scenes about his lack of work ethic, about his bad habits, about his poor choices off the field, and I can talk about it. You know why? Because he's being paid millions of dollars to play the game. He has a contract. He is a professional. He is employed by the Houston Texans. Kid at Arkansas may be 19 years old. Kid at Arkansas may be working for an investment company a couple of years from now. Point is, sometimes you know things. I'm not certainly saying people don't know things. 
But there is a line sometimes that you have to come up well short of when you're talking about the sport we love, college football versus the NFL. And because of that, maybe it seems, Adam, like there aren't as many, or maybe there isn't one or two alpha college football insiders. Well, there's a difference between supply of information sometimes and the amount of information you're allowed to share. Now, that's how I modeled late kick. The way I modeled late kick is I think we've been wise enough to look around and say, this is 24-7 sports, and the entire concept, the entire structure here is we have team sites. And the best insiders, I said this long before I came here, in this industry, the best team insiders are the folks who run the team sites, the individual team sites for 24-7 sports. And now that I'm here, for example, I can leverage that. And so I can go to Jake Rowe, who broke the Jamie Newman story a couple of weeks ago, a week or so ago about Georgia, you know, quarterback transition, and I can go to him. He's the guy on the inside. I can't simultaneously be in 37 different places, but our network of team insiders can. And so what I try and do for you, whether it be on this podcast or whether it be Late Kick Live on the YouTube channel, what I try and do is funnel the best stuff up to where you get access to all of it. And certainly we're not going to take 10 minutes and break down Vanderbilt's outside linebacker battle. But what we're going to do is the stuff that you care about, that you just don't know about, that's the stuff I try and funnel up to you. And we're able to filter it through the best network of team insiders in college football. So when I look at college football, a lot more fragmented, that just means there's a lot more room for insiders. And it means there's a lot more work to be done. But we're happy to do it because... To be honest with you, I'd be doing it for free, even if I wasn't here being paid to do it. So why not do it at as high a level as we can using the best people that we can? It's a good question, though. It's a really good, really good question. Jake has our next question. I heard Kirk Herbstreet mention Derek Stingley as a Heisman candidate, and it reminded me of you talking about Jalen Waddell at Alabama being your dark horse favorite if a non-quarterback wins. I'd love to know what you think about the Heisman race for people not named Trevor Lawrence. Well, Jake, what I think about the Heisman race is usually not very much, but I respect your question, so I'm going to answer the question. Versatility is a big, big factor that comes into play every year for me, just watching the sport and not necessarily thinking about it within the context of, okay, let me watch this sport so I can see who's going to win the Heisman. But this is a Heisman question. So versatility, important every year? It's really important this year. And when I say versatility, I don't just mean you know, since you mentioned Jalen Waddle, I don't just mean the way that Jalen Waddle could catch a ball out of the backfield. He could take a direct snap. He could return kicks. I don't mean that kind of versatility. Well, I kind of do, but I also mean who's playing both ways this year? Because this is a year, this is a COVID year, where I think there's a lot more cross-training going on in practices right now that are generally closed to the public than you're being led to believe. And coaches are doing that Number one, because they can, because no one's watching. And number two, because they may need it. You got elite athletes. I mean, think about Derek Stingley. I can't tell you this is happening, but think about Derek Stingley or Jalen Waddle. If I was a head coach, you don't think I'd be cross-training them for emergency purposes? You don't think I'd be seeing what Stingley could do in a slot receiver situation? You don't think I'd be seeing what Jalen Waddle could do as an emergency corner or a nickel corner? Absolutely, I would. And so then I think about the Heisman. And as much as Heisman voters have devalued elite defensive players over the years, which is one of the reasons I've kind of tuned out on the award, as much as they've done that, 
they get drunk on players that play both ways. And so I go back to 2016 because I think a precedent has been set here, and that is Jabril Peppers up at Michigan back in 2016. Everyone remembers him as being a great player, a phenomenal player, and he was great athlete. He didn't have great numbers that year, but yet he was a Heisman finalist. I think he finished like fourth or fifth. Anyway, he was in the conversation. So I took it upon myself to look these numbers up because I, re- I knew that they weren't in and of themselves elite. But conceptually, folks in the media who vote on this, they got so drunk on the concept of someone who does everything. And I did too. I love Peppers. He was, was a phenomenal player at Michigan. But I went and looked it up. And in 2016, the year that he was in the Heisman conversation, he had 71 tackles. That was good for 32nd in the Big Ten. He had three and a half sacks. That was 35th in the Big Ten. He had one pick the whole year. And on offense, playing both ways, remember, on offense, 27 carries for 167 yards, three touchdowns. Now, that would be a good game, Jake. That would be a really good game. You put up 27 for 167 and three scores against Penn State. That's a really good day. The problem is... That was his entire season's numbers rushing. He had two receptions that year for three yards. So none of those numbers in in and of themselves scream Heisman. But when you combine them all, there it is. We got a guy playing both ways here. We got a guy on special teams, dynamic special teams guy. So that could happen this year is my point. And if we're talking about non-Trevor Lawrence types, non-quarterback types even, as for now, Justin Fields is out of the equation. And so as for now... I'm looking around, and that's what I'm looking for. But here's the hang-up. We don't really know who that could be. Certainly, you have to have a, a level of elite athleticism to even enter that equation, so maybe we could cross off some names. But until we watch in week one and week two, and we find out maybe some things that were happening in practices across the country that we weren't aware of, I don't fully know the answer to that question. So until then, as for non-QBs, I'm going to stick with Waddle. Stingley's another good choice out of LSU. Next up is H. Drake, 48. Over the next few years, which consistent 7-8 win caliber team could become a double-digit win program and which current double-digit win caliber program could regress to that 7-8 win per year range? I had a tough time with the second part of this, so the first part is easy. I think North Carolina is the 7-8 caliber win team that could go up to a double-digit win caliber team per year. I'm very glad you said caliber because any given year, you could have a win total. This is not Major League Baseball, where typically they play 162 games. So percentages and numbers, they wash out over time. And you are pretty much going to put up the win total that is directly correlated to the caliber of team you are. But in college football, most recently, Texas did this a couple of years ago. Texas ends up in the Sugar Bowl, and they weren't a New Year Six caliber team. But yet they were in the Sugar Bowl, which is a New Year's Six game. And the evidence has been borne out since then. Because since then, people who don't know how to properly interpret that have looked at Texas and said, oh, they've fallen off since that year. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. If you understand how to properly look at the trajectory of Texas, you can properly attribute that season to just being a little bit of an outlier in terms of record. And so it's very important to phrase it this way. And you phrased it properly, H. So caliber, which seven to eight win caliber program could end up being a double-digit win-per-year caliber program? I think the answer is North Carolina. Consistency at quarterback is going to be key. They've got it now. They have got it committed for the future in Drake May. 
They also, I think they right now understand we're not good enough along the lines of scrimmage. They are taking efforts as we speak to rectify that in recruiting. I also wonder if they could go alternative routes to do that. Not the easiest thing in the world to do at Carolina. I understand that. But I wonder if they could do that. I also think that the brand of North Carolina is changing. The brand of North Carolina football is pretty radically changing. So I don't think it's some five- or six-year effort in order to do this. And they're in a very, very winnable situation. Behind Clemson over there, You know, the big question in the ACC, we were talking about it the other night, is, okay, behind Clemson, they're established. Who's going to be number two? Consistently, who's going to be number two? Because right now, it's this pool of teams. It could be Virginia Tech. It could be Virginia. It could be Miami. It could be Florida State. Louisville made some noise last year. Pitt is a dark horse in many people's eyes. And so certainly North Carolina could be in that equation. Who could it be? Who could it be? That's who I would probably pick, though, is North Carolina. Now, as for the other side, which current double-digit win per year caliber team could regress to seven to eight. I didn't have anyone that jumped out. Notre Dame is currently a team that fits this description. And I don't, to be clear, think of, I don't think this about Notre Dame. I don't expect them to fall off. But the others, I can't see a path. Like Alabama's not fallen there. Um, Clemson's not fallen there. Ohio State's not fallen there. So who could fall there? I guess the most likely would be Notre Dame. Because Notre Dame, to this point, has not been dynamic at quarterback, which always leaves you vulnerable. Now, in the future, they have quarterback figured to be an upgraded position through recruiting, but there's never a certainty there. So if I had to pick one and I had to bet money on something that I don't necessarily think is going to happen, it would be Notre Dame. Next up is a question from The Ticked Off. And TTO, for future reference, says, Josh, I love the show, but please reclaim your title as Cocky Jr. Talk some South Carolina. Backstory on the nickname I feel is necessary at this point. And the backstory is this. When I was down in Columbus doing a show called Football Nightly Down South, I had a buddy with me, Jonathan Rivers, and we did a show on the CW affiliate down there in Columbus every weeknight at 10 Eastern. Well, 10.03, because we had to do a news segment on the front end to justify putting a 27-minute college football show on CW in a time slot that was slotted for local news. So that was a workaround that I still don't think that the high-ups out in Los Angeles ever really caught on to us doing, one of the benefits of working in Market 124. But anyway, that was when Will Muschamp had come to South Carolina, and it was, it was just, I took a principled stance. And Muschamp had failed, quote-unquote, at Florida. You know, he failed, he got fired, so he went to Auburn, rectified his image, and then got hired at South Carolina. And there were some fans in our viewing market that were so adamant that if you failed once, you'll fail forever. And I don't believe that. I didn't then, and I don't now. So I took a principled stance in support of Will Muschamp, which made it sound to the viewers like I was a diehard South Carolina fan. And so they started referring to me, not as Josh, in the emails. And we had a live phone line, by the way. Imagine that. No call screener and no delay. We were live as live could be, exposed for the world, at least in Columbus, and we took live calls. And yes, it went exactly how you would think it went. So they started calling me Cocky Jr. So that's the backstory. I would assume this question has come from somewhere down there because that is the backstory that No one outside of Columbus or Phoenix City, Alabama has any business knowing. But since I'm being asked to talk about Carolina, here are a couple of things. Very good quarterback battle going on right there. 
I think Colin Hill probably has a lead over Ryan Helensky at this point, and that kind of marries up. I was looking this morning in preparation for the show at what our friends over at TheBigSpur.com have been saying about scrimmage intel, and that's kind of what they're hearing over there too, and they're closer to that situation certainly than I am. But the name that I've been given over the past few days is Deshaun Fenwick, who is a running back they really need to step up. And it looks like he has, in the absence of Marshawn Lloyd, who was going to be a breakout candidate this year in the SEC at running back for Carolina. And he goes down for the season. Deshaun Fenwick has really stepped up so far. I have trouble just putting a huge stamp of endorsement on anyone who I haven't seen yet this year. I have not seen it with my own eyes. It would be one thing if it was 24 hours after the Tennessee game in week one and Fenwick had gone for you know, 24 carries, 138, and a couple of scores, well then, yeah, I mean, it'd be easy to say that. So far, we've got practice reports. So take it with the proper grain of salt. But the other thing they're ecstatic about over there right now, and kind of rinse and repeat what I just said about the hesitancy to just give the blanket stamp of approval and endorsement, is Mike Bobo. And here's what the criticism was of Brian McClendon, that is a surefire compliment being paid to Mike Bobo right now, and that is progression-based play calling. And it's a simple concept, but it's all of a sudden a hard concept sometimes when you don't have someone in there who seems to really grasp the concept. And it's just it's understanding and having a plan and calling plays according to that plan. And if you don't have a plan, then you just you got a play sheet in front of you, but you're just calling plays. It's kind of like if you ever used to play the video games. Uh, or maybe you still do. I used to play them. But sometimes what you would do is you call a play, and then you'd run the play and see if it worked. And then you would go back in and, all right, play clock started, so let's choose another play. Well, that's not progression-based play calling. Progression-based play calling is kind of like chess versus checkers. In chess, you're not making a move without future moves in mind. Or if you are, you're not long for that game, if you're playing anyone worth anything. So a lot of people have seen already early signs that Mike Bobo understands that. Not that there was any mystery. Probably wouldn't have been hired if he didn't, but it's just something they haven't seen over there in a while. So that has them a little bit excited. Now, having said that, I don't mean to pour water on every single statement I make that sounds positive about Carolina. I'm saying this with a lot of teams. Let's wait and see. I think it's very, very unreasonable to expect at a place like Carolina, a place like Georgia in the SEC East alone, places where you have several new pieces offensively, including coordinator, I think it's unreasonable to see them put up you know, 24 points in the first half of the first game they play. So let's be reasonable about this. Next up is TB. With Nolan Rucci out of Lancaster, PA, committing to Wisconsin, and last year's commitment of five-star wide receiver Julian Fleming to Ohio State, also from Pennsylvania, both players are roughly within two hours of Penn State's campus. What does this say? of Penn State as a program and James Franklin as a coach and his staff to lose out on the number one player in the state the last two years. Does it say anything at all, or am I just reading too deeply into it? It's just hard for me to imagine high-end programs like Ohio State or Alabama allowing that to happen. TB, the number one player in Alabama, left the state last year, and he went to Georgia. So it does happen. It could happen, as my buddy JP famously said in Angels in the Outfield. However. I understand in theory what you're saying. Let me be clear. Penn State is not on the level of Ohio State or Alabama as a recruiting power yet. 
So I don't compare them to those two programs. And in fairness, I don't really compare anyone this side of Clemson and maybe Georgia to those two programs. But let's break this down a little bit. If you want even further in-depth analysis, check out the Wolfong Recruiting Whip Around, which I'll be uploading as soon as I hit stop on this recording, by the way. So it'll be there. And Wolfong goes into great detail on the behind the scenes here. But essentially, I think what this came down to is Wisconsin had started recruiting Rucci, who is a five-star offensive tackle in the composite, the 24-7 sports composite, if you don't know, big-time player, ready to play immediately. And he is a guy who was offered, I think, in eighth grade by Wisconsin. And uh, there there were reasons to stay home at Penn State. He's a legacy recruit, but I think really what it came down to, it's been overthought a lot. I think what it came down to is the change in offensive staff over this past cycle and bringing in Kirk Soraka as the new offensive coordinator at Penn State and the inability to get face-to-face contact because of COVID, I think that's really what it came down to. And you could take all kind of branches off of that tree and you could say, well, what about this? What about that? Yep, but all those are tied to, I think, the main reason that I just listed. But here's what I think it says about Penn State and James Franklin. It says they missed out on a couple of guys they wanted. That's what it says. It happens. It happens. But I also want to say this. What if Kirk Soraka comes in and let's say they end up having a season in the Big Ten sometime in the next four or five years and they shine and that offense looks like it has taken the next step? Well, all of a sudden, let's say a five-star wide receiver for the class of 2022 is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I think he's far less likely to leave the state. If you've got a proven product at Penn State, that is featuring and leveraging elite wide receiver talent. Ohio State has shown it. Okay, At at the time that Julian Fleming was committing, Penn State hadn't shown it. They just hadn't shown it. So that didn't surprise me. Wisconsin has shown the ability to develop several offensive linemen who weren't as highly rated as Nolan Rucci. So there's no guesswork going to Wisconsin with his family and the kid himself. Maybe there is a little bit going to Penn State. I think a lot of people, to be honest with you, are still a little bit unfair with their expectations for Penn State. Folks, it's a miracle they are where they are right now. Attention spans have gotten so short that it was not that long ago that this program was mired in the biggest scandal of this millennium so far in college football. Really, one of the biggest in sports. The abuse scandal up there is still fresh and they got hit with crippling sanctions. And no one even talks about it now. Think about how hard it is and how in line you got to have every aspect to get over it that quickly and to recover a program that quickly. They already have. People are holding them to the Alabama-Ohio State standard. I'm not. Like, I'm overly impressed Penn State is where they are right now. And now they set themselves up, if we can never get things off the ground in the Big Ten, to where now they've got their feet under them again, and they've had some good seasons already, but now they can take that next step. But listen, in order to climb a ladder, you got to have your feet under you first. I I view Penn State as having their feet under them. Now it's time to climb the ladder. One doesn't happen before the other. David is next up. I'm curious, have you ever found yourself, or did you ever find yourself, having to choose between a career in sports media versus a career in meteorology or storm chasing? If so, how did you make the decision? Well, it was easy with the storm chasing, David. There's really no money in that. So that's a hobby. Always has been, always will be, God willing. I did have to choose between a career in sports media and meteorology or atmospheric science. 
And it came down to passion for science versus passion for creativity. And creativity won out. As you can imagine, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to be creative in the world of weather than it is in the sports media world, like we're doing right now. This is commentary, so I can predict Alabama's going to finish 7th in the SEC West if I want to. I cannot, however, look at Euro or GFS Ensemble data this morning, and if all of them agree, if every one of the model data output says, oh, it's probably going to be anywhere from 84 to 87 degrees in Macon, Georgia this afternoon, I can't be going on TV and saying, oh, we're going to struggle to hit 60 today. I can't do that. Well, I can't do it for long. Let's put it that way. So creativity over science won out in the passion department. However, I'll say this and I'll leave it there. I have some concepts for more entertainment-based weather content production that I think are very possible, that I think there is a huge untapped market for, that I fully plan on exploring one of these days. So let me leave that there. Also, there was another reason. I've seen the requirements for an atmospheric science degree. I've been around a couple of buddies who were already meteorologists who were going for their SEALs and who were going for advancement and obtaining new degrees, and I've, in some cases, taking online classes, I have watched them go through their coursework. It is very taxing. It is very in the weeds, and it's a lot of stuff that you will never, ever have to use in your life on air, but yet you have to know the science, and whew, like there are ways, there are a few different paths you can take to get a microphone in front of your face and someone paying you to do it. Obviously, college is the most traditional route, but it's not necessary. It's necessary in weather, and you got to commit yourself to it, and that's a natural filtration process because it takes a long time. But uh, you know what's funny, though? In the weather industry, kind of like in the sports media industry, it's evolving pretty rapidly right now. And what I mean by that is when I was 10 years old, when I was 12 years old, and I was playing around with a toy microphone, and I was first kind of approaching the idea that I kind of want to do this maybe when I grow up for a living, everyone's true north was ESPN. Everyone's true north was I wake up every morning and go to sleep every night watching SportsCenter. That's the goal. That is the mountaintop for everyone in sports media. Just like if I was the same age in weather, the Weather Channel, right up the road in Atlanta from where I grew up. That was true north. That was everyone's compass. That was where it was pointed. That's where you're trying to get. That's not the way it is today. That is certainly not the way it is. Not that it wouldn't still be a great accomplishment to work at either of those places, but there are other options. The independent route is an option. There are several other places that you could go and be employed as an option and be what I would refer to as at or near the pinnacle of those respective industries. So who knows what five years from now either of those industries look like. Charles is up next. Do you think Auburn under... Gus Malzahn will ever have an offense that gets back to a triple option, up-tempo, no-huddle attack, the kind that we were accustomed to seeing in 2010 and 2013. The Malzahn offense that got the Tigers to two national championship games, including a win with Cam Newton at quarterback. I know Gus has on offense right now, or who he has is not conducive to that style, but I really miss seeing him go crazy on the sideline, running an offense designed under his philosophy. Charles, the answer is no, I don't expect it. There are reasons. The first is, when Malzahn first arrived here, he never fooled anyone. I want to make this perfectly clear. There was a misconception out there that when Gus Malzahn got to Auburn, and 2010 is something that I throw away totally. 2010 was not Gus Malzahn's offense. It was Cam Newton's offense. So that's kind of a throwaway. I don't take credit away. What I'm saying is, 
you did what you did that year because of the uniqueness of personnel at quarterback. So unless a monster freak athlete quarterback is going to just randomly walk onto campus in Auburn out of Blinn College in Texas, then we probably have to use a different set of criteria here. So, you know, Nick Marshall, 2013, okay, that I could see. That's a former defensive back at Georgia that transfers to Auburn. So, yes, that sort of thing could happen. You could get that caliber athlete, that style of quarterback. But here's the thing. They didn't surprise people. Malzahn was OC in 2010. He was head coach in 2013. He didn't surprise anyone. He made people look foolish, but it wasn't because they were surprised. It was because a lot of folks down here had recruited 250-pound linebackers to stop the likes of the Georgia running game or the LSU run game or the Alabama run game. Well, all of a sudden, Malzahn said, well, all these folks are trying to run through the opponent. I think I'll just run around them. And it's really hard to recruit to stop both. So Malzahn made people look stupid, but it wasn't like in post-game film study, those coaching staffs were sitting there watching Auburn's offense saying, man, I just can't really get a read on what they're doing. It was simple. There was no, there were not a ton of complexities. Maybe to the untrained eye there were, but to defensive coordinators in the SEC, it wasn't that. It was just them looking at it and saying, well, I can pretty much sketch out this entire offense on a pizza box, but we don't have the personnel to stop it. We can't go sideline to sideline like we need to. He's using 53 and a third yards of this field, and we're used to playing in a phone booth, and we're built to stop teams who play in a phone booth. So it took a little while, but guess what? Then the league adjusted. The league's not going to let you do that to it for very long. So the league adjusted, and now Gus Malzahn could take the exact same team he had in 2013. If I were to give him that same exact roster in 2020, he wouldn't be able to do anything remotely close in 2020 to what he was able to do in 2013, statistically. It'd be a good team, but they wouldn't do what they were able to do with the exact same team in 2020. The league's adjusted. The personnel defensively is different. And so Malzahn understands that. That's why I think he went and got Chad Morris, because he understands they have to upgrade their team and they have to conceptually upgrade their passing game. Because right now, no one is scared of it. And you got a quarterback who's got a good arm. You got a quarterback with the ability to throw the ball. I mean, and he's very good at it now. I watched uh, Bo Nix in high school. Bo Nix is a guy who, if I dropped him at Oklahoma, could put up ridiculous video game type passing numbers. He's not being properly utilized there. And he's a true freshman, so he's now a sophomore. So I understand we have one year under our belts to to gauge that by. But Malzahn's evolving that offense because he knows he needs to. And I'm very excited to see that this year. It could be bumpy with that offensive line and uncertainties there, but I'm very excited to see that because that is the step that I think they have to take and he thinks they have to take. Uh, staying in the SEC, Isaac asks, which new coaches in that conference will be able to install their preferred system and culture the quickest? Well, the new coaches out of all those, to me, I don't know why this is, but the day Lane Kiffin was hired at Ole Miss, it felt like a fit to me. Lane Kiffin just feels like Ole Miss to me. I don't know how you guys take that in Oxford, but he feels like Ole Miss to me. I mean, one of the most classic moments in the last 10 years in the SEC is Lane Kiffin on a tarmac at Ole Miss being welcomed by a fan and then in the very next sentence being told, hey, get you a burner now. You better get you a burner. That right there could not be written any better if it were being pitched for a Netflix series 
That was classic. That was like watching Saban a generation earlier arrive to this mob in the middle of a workday, this mob of Alabama fans on the tarmac. I mean, some lady tried to open-mouth kiss him right there in front of God and everyone, tried to open-mouth kiss Saban, and he did the very, very shrewd turn the cheek at the last minute, and he still got one. Fortunately, it wasn't on the mouth. But I think Lane Kiffin fits at Ole Miss. I don't think he'll have any problem installing the kind of culture that he wants to put in there. It's kind of football counterculture, and it already fits at Ole Miss. Sam Pittman feels like Arkansas to me. Now, the culture, to me, the question there is a little bit different because of the lack of head coaching experience, but I don't know that that necessarily is going to stand in the way of Sam Pittman because he's got himself a really good staff up there. How long he can keep that staff together it depends on how they do this year, probably. I don't know enough about Drinkwitz at, at Missouri, to be honest with you. So I'm still wait and see on that one. Mike Leach does not feel like a fit at Mississippi State, just to be brutally honest with you. Could be wrong. Hope I'm wrong, for the record. But it, it feels very, very much like a forced fit there. And um, I, But I, at the same time, as I said when they hired him, that's the way I feel, but who cares about how I feel because I've been wrong about this stuff before. The point is, Mississippi State, even if the fit doesn't feel perfect, they did what they have to do. They have to take a chance. They can't go find someone who's going to play things safely there. They can't do that. Well, they can do it and go 5-7 and seven every year, but they had to take a chance. And you know what? A roll of the dice, sometimes you can flame out on it, but would you rather roll the dice and have a question mark or take the more safe route and the route that quote-unquote fits better and guarantee yourself you're never going above 500. So I think they made the move they needed to there. Next up is AJ. How much do you think universities can get the edge on recruiting by being good at multiple sports? Well, it's big, AJ, and it's big because of culture. You rarely find a university that's good at every sport that has a weak culture. In fact, you never find that. It never happens. So culture permeates. You feel it if you're a prospective athlete, if you're a recruit, you feel it as soon as you step on that campus. So it really helps in recruiting visits. I mean, one of the staples of an official recruiting visit during the season, most times, is you take the kids to the basketball game. If you have any kind of good atmosphere at your basketball games, you take the football players to the basketball game. So it helps there. But here's what else it does. It galvanizes sidewalk alumni. A lot of people use this in a pejorative context, the sidewalk fan. I don't. Sidewalk fan essentially means you root for a university, but you didn't go there, which is perfectly fine. Who in the world cares if you went there? There's an added degree if you did go there. Okay, There's an added level and layer in your mind of pride that maybe a sidewalk alumni doesn't have. I'm fine with that. You take pride in your school more than someone who didn't go there. But having said that, you know, if you're at a Texas A&M, that stadium is not 101,000 strong every Saturday because you got 101,000 folks with degrees from A&M on their wall sitting in the stadium. They build those stadiums as big as they do because of sidewalk fans. And so in the sidewalk alumni base, there's a lot bigger tendency to root for a sport instead of the university. If you graduated from A&M, you probably just bleed Aggies. Every single thing, every sport, you know, cross country, uh, football, basketball, you pull for them all. But if I'm just someone who grew up in Denton, Texas, and I was attracted to A&M football, I may just pull for A&M football. Couldn't tell you who the basketball coach is. But if every sport is good, then it also galvanizes that sidewalk alumni base. 
And that really helps because it has an effect on the overall culture and the way that recruits see your brand half the time is tied into how they interact with fans, how they observe the fan base. And if the fan base is dialed in all year round, then that attracts a kid to the university, maybe instead of just the team. And those bonds are a lot stronger, and those are guys who rarely transfer. Next up is Josh. Decent name, I would say. As someone outside the U.S., I had to pick my own team without any family or geographical or social tie. I had my own criteria, but now I'm trying to get my friends who are sports fans into college football, but they need help finding a team. So if you were not someone brought up in college football, who would you support and what would your criteria and choice be? Josh, you asked for one here. That's not the way I would approach it. Okay, if, if I'm choosing, I'm going to choose a stable of teams. Put the percentages in your favor. You don't want to choose someone and live half a world away and see them go one and two to start the season and you lose interest and all of a sudden you're watching cricket all afternoon on Saturdays. No one wants that. That's not a life that I would wish on my worst enemy. And so what I would do is I would treat it like pro wrestling. I would choose a stable of teams. And so I would have an alpha team. Okay, that's, that's the one first and foremost that you root for above all else. If your alpha team plays other teams in your stable, you still root for the alpha team. Now, right now, to me, that would be Alabama because I would want to root for the greatest head coach in the history of the sport. And that's a program uh, that is as tradition rich as anyone in the history of the sport. So Alabama would probably be the alpha. I'm a front runner, by the way, in case you haven't noticed. I love big brands. I love the front runners or I am a front runner. So I love teams that win consistently. So I would choose Alabama. I wouldn't overthink the room. I wouldn't be someone who, you know, chose, I'm not going to say a university here because I will get hate mail for a week. I wouldn't choose the scrappy underdog as my alpha. That's what I'm saying. Now, having said that, I throw Iowa State in there. I have long talked about my fascination weird fascination with Iowa State. Never been to the state, but I love the color scheme. I love the culture up there. I love the game day atmosphere from what I've seen on TV. So I would throw Iowa State in there for maybe niche-based purposes. I'd throw a team like Oregon in there to get a West Coast presence. The branding, the uniqueness, the appeal of that logo, the Nike tie-in, the more modernized version of college football out there, all-encompassing. So I would put Oregon in there. I would take... um, a G5 team like Cincinnati, just for chaos purposes. So I would create a stable. That's, that's what my recommendation would be, Josh. Treat it like a, like a college football team draft and draft you about four or five or six teams. Don't let me put a limit on you, but you, know, you don't want to roll around 15 teams deep, okay? Because then you're going to have conflict every Saturday. But get you an alpha and then get you about three or four more teams and then enjoy your Saturdays. Samar and Tommy kind of had a version of the same question, so I'm going to combine these here. Question about the Rose Bowl. There have been rumors the Big Ten and Pac-12 are having maybe some sort of handshake agreement to play their seasons after Thanksgiving, and then they have conference champs play each other in a de facto Rose Bowl game. However, the Rose Bowl is scheduled to host a college football playoff semifinal game. Does this mean we may see two Rose Bowls and two national champs in 2021? I guess it could. I'm... I have no clue what to make of a season that starts in November. And I have no way to know whether anyone is even going to take a season serious that starts then. I don't know. I mean, I can assure you we'd talk about it, but I don't know how serious it's taken. I don't know how many star players would opt out. So point is, let's just say it does happen. 
and let's say the Big Ten and Pac-12 get seasons off the ground simultaneously and they end long after the real college football season has ended. Yeah, I think we could see two Rose Bowls. In fact, I don't think they would start their seasons up without the end goal of having a second Rose Bowl. I don't think they'd start one up without confirmation that that's the mountaintop, that's the prize that everyone's working towards. So I think we probably would have them. As for the two national champions, that's going to be decided by like the AP voters, for example. You're going to have a, if you have a college football playoff, you will have a national champion crowned. The question would become, does the AP go along with that? Does the AP say, okay, the, we're just recognizing the champion that is crowned by the college football playoff committee. That's going to be our champion too. Or are they going to say, we're going to wait for the entire season to end as we see it, and then we'll decide who our champion is. And to that, I have no idea. Guys, I have no clue how that would go, how that would look. Uh, could be chaos, which seems to be the word of the day on this podcast. Matthew has probably one of the most important questions in the history of this podcast. Josh, I love the movie Twister, and I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on the movie Dante's Peak. Great question, Matthew. Life-changing question. Dante's Peak was a movie about a volcano. It was kind of meant to be fashioned after Mount St. Helens, it was set in the Pacific Northwest. This was a disaster movie that came out in the 90s, mid to late 90s. I think I was in middle school when this came out. I thought it had good storytelling. I really felt like, sitting in that movie theater, by the end of that movie, I felt like if that theater were to collapse around me, Pierce Brosnan really would come in and try and save me. I really felt like Pierce Brosnan would come back for me if I needed help from him. So I fully bought into his character. The grandma, aggravating. The grandma was also fashioned, if you're familiar with the story of Mount St. Helens, she was kind of fashioned after a guy named Harry Truman, not the Harry Truman you know, but one who lived up on Spirit Lake, up in Mount St. Helens, and he was one that dug his heels in, refused to leave, and then things went boom, and then Harry went bye-bye. And the grandma was kind of taking that stance too, this mountain won't hurt me. Well, lady, the mountain really doesn't know you from Adam. And so it did try and hurt you, and it was too late to get her out of there, wasn't it? And so one thing that I didn't know happened, and to be honest, even today, um, I haven't talked to a geologist about this, but I didn't know those lakes were able to turn to acid. Maybe some creative leeway was taken by our friends in Hollywood, or maybe that's just reality, but the lake turning to acid and her having to hop out of the boat, uh, spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't seen this, it's been 25 years, so you need to get your act together. That was tough to watch, but you know what? In the end, she probably deserved it. And the last thing I want to say about Dante's Peak, and again, I think this is very important work that we're doing here on the podcast this morning. There's this strange thing about disaster movies. I told you Tuesday, there are things that I feel sometimes that I'm certain no one else feels. And this may be one of them. Disaster movies are all about building up to the disaster climax, right? In Dante's Peak, the entire reason you're watching the movie is to see the volcano erupt. The entire reason you're watching Armageddon is to see whether the asteroid is going to hit Earth or not. Well, I have this thing about me where after I've seen a disaster movie, if they come on again, and you know, Armageddon's been on probably 37 times on FX this month. Dante's Peak's on a lot too. So every time after the first time I watch the disaster movie, I tune out before the disaster. I watch the buildup. I watch the pre-build and the storytelling and the stage setting, but then I'll dip out because I don't want to put myself emotionally 
through the taxation of watching, even though I know how it ends, of watching. I do the same thing in Titanic if it's on. I tune out before the ship sinks. Does anyone else do that? Please tell me I'm not alone on this island. I just want to hear a voice somewhere. Now, Twister is the exception, because the people who made Twister had the good sense to put like seven tornadoes in the movie. So there really is no one climax. Yeah, the big F5 at the end is a climax, and they got to hold onto the pipe and you know, swing their feet in the air as the tornado goes right over them. So realistic. I mean, it's exactly how it happens in real life. You can open your eyes fully in the middle of an EF5 tornado and just look up into it. That's how it happens, guys. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that that is reality. Great soundtrack in Twister 2. I don't know about the soundtrack in Dante's Peak, but yes, Pierce Brosnan got shafted out of an Academy Award if he didn't win one for that movie. It's really embarrassing in several ways how passionate I was about that response. So let me take a breath for a second. When we come back, though, got a question from Ethan about starting out in podcasting or media, etc. And also got a question from Chase that's nothing like that. He says, I don't care about quarterback. Who's going to beat Georgia? Who could ever score enough to beat on Georgia? Well, I may have an answer. I may not. But I'm going to try my best right after this. So coming back here, Ethan says, I'm 15 years old. I'm a sophomore in high school. I record a podcast about college football every week. I always watch every show you do. I love it. I just wanted to know if you have any tips for me for podcasting. Well, at 15, just get as many reps as you can, Ethan, which is the same advice I would give someone who is 50. Get as many reps as you can. You gotta not be afraid to suck. I never heard your podcast, Ethan. I'm just telling you, if I would to have listened to myself at 15, I would have sucked. I have some footage of that. In fact, it's publicly available. I'll never tell you guys where it is, but it is available out there in the deep, dark recesses of the internet. But having said that, get repetition out of the way. Now, a lot of you email me things like this. A lot of you reach out in my Twitter DMs, and I've told you it's been a couple of weeks since I mentioned this. I encourage you to reach out to me. I've got an entire network of people that I kind of work alongside with on the side doing different things. Uh, You know, some of you help the show out behind the scenes. Some of you help me out with things behind the scenes. And so I've got spots open if you guys want to participate in that. But I also have spots open if you just want feedback, you know, about how your work looks or sounds, advice. And I'm not telling you that I'm the end-all, be-all authority on this, but if you reach out, I am happy to talk to you about it. But repetition, there is no substitute for it. Now, Chase asked, regarding the uncertainty at quarterback for Georgia... Can we actually believe anyone else outside of Alabama can even score enough points to beat them? I don't care about the questions. I mean, yeah, last year South Carolina lucked into a win. What about Auburn's offense with Bo Nix, Tennessee with Jarrett Garantano? I understand it's easy to point to last year's Carolina loss and say, well, it happened then, it could happen again. But that was an outlier in the past three years, not the standard. And what he's talking about is the minus four turnover debacle that Georgia had against Carolina that led to... One of the most shocking losses by a top 10 team last year of any in the country, unless I'm forgetting something very notable, and it is a distinct possibility. Chase, this is a good question now. I mean, nothing's happened to that defense. No one's checked out on that defense, so they're all still there. think it will be one of the best units in the country, and so that's the style they're going to have to play this year, certainly. I I already thought they were going to have to play it that way, to be honest with you, but that's the style they're going to have to play this year. What I'm saying and what he's kind of suggesting is, Okay, we may not be able to run up 45 points a game, but who's to say that Georgia doesn't win every game 17 to 13? And it's possible. It is very possible. I will say this. 
The one thing that I was looking at with Georgia and still looking at with Georgia, a couple of things really. Ability to generate a pass rush is something that they've been working on for a couple of years now. They're still not really where they want to be. Uh, They have first world problems there, but they're not necessarily where they want to be. But the other part is, you know, if they stay healthy in the secondary, they're going to be great in the secondary. If they have one or two guys go down, or as I said the other day, if they have an offense like an Alabama who possesses the personnel packages offensively to flex them into needing to be consistently in a nickel or dime set, they are thin in their defensive backfield behind a very impressive first wave of guys. So those are the two things that if the defensive effort were to go sideways for Georgia this year, it would probably be tied to one of those two reasons. Josh asks, excuse me, Joshua asks, I have a question about AM's offensive line. Huge concern consistently mentioned by anyone covering the sport is inexperience in the offensive line. Since we're running four seniors this year, with the 2021 season, will it be improved by better talent or by losing experience? Will we be hurt? I don't think there's any way to know how to gauge that right now, Josh. Uh, And the reason is because of how active the transfer portal is. I mean, who's to say Jimbo Fisher doesn't feel how you feel right now and go into the transfer portal in the offseason and get three junior or senior level tackles that are really good just playing for bad programs? Who's to say that A&M won't have a top three offensive line this time next year using guys who aren't even on the roster right now? Not to mention the recruiting that they've done. Okay, I I don't think they've done a bad job recruiting there. So the mixture of recruiting, talent development, and the ability to supplement lack thereof with options from the transfer market, I think it makes it very hard to answer these kinds of questions now. Uh, Tom is going to wrap us up today. Could be my shortest answer of the entire podcast. Tom says... Why does everyone just pick Alabama like they're a de facto winner already? Because they're the best team in the SEC, Tom. I like to be right. If I didn't like to be right, I'd never pick Alabama to win. But I like to be right. So I have picked, I was, I was charting this the other day. Okay, it's not going to be the shortest answer. I was charting this the other day. I have picked Alabama to lose one game in the last decade. One. And I guarantee you, you cannot guess. No, no, no. I've picked them to lose two. Because the Auburn game this past year, I picked them to lose. So I have picked this team to lose two football games in the past decade. They've lost more than that. My point is, there's not a whole lot of skill in trying to predict which one they're going to lose. So I just pick them because they're always favored. They're always the better team in the game. And so I pick who I think is the better team to win the game nine times out of ten. The two games. I told you Auburn, the Iron Bowl this last year was one of them. What was the other game? Out of all the games Alabama's played in the last decade, what is the one game that you think I picked them to lose in? The answer is 2012 Texas A&M. Alabama, as a two-touchdown favorite, loses to Johnny Menzel and the Texas A&M Aggies. And yours truly, documented folks, picked Alabama to lose that game. That, my friends, is skill. I may not have done anything of note since then, but I picked Bama to lose to AM and Johnny Menzel. I was a hero on local radio in Columbus for like a month after that. All right, we got to get out of here. I got an episode of Leak Kick Live to do tonight. I got to get this to Jordan so he can edit it. Thank you so much for listening. Five star reviews, five star reviews, five star reviews. Dump them on us. Share the podcast. You guys are doing a great job with that already. Remember, if you want to submit a question for this, email me joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can DM me on Twitter 
at Late Kick Josh. Give me a follow there too. Or when you're watching Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, look under the live video, the full length shows, and there'll be a pinned comment and you can reply to that comment with questions. All right, with that being said, for myself, for producer Jordan, thank you so much for listening. This has been Late Kick Extra. I'm Josh Bate. Have a great day and God bless.